Today is April 18th, and uh, I'm going to be giving a Dharma talk this morning on the topic of impermanence. Um, Impermanence is one of the, uh, in Buddhist teaching, in the Buddhist teaching, it's one of the three marks of existence. Um, Many people know this, but probably not everyone. Um, So they're impermanence, suffering, and no self. And the the Pali terms are uh, anika, dukkha, and anatta. And the three are sort of interrelated, of course, uh, but impermanence is a really good place to start, and that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning, um, because um, our resistance to the reality of impermanence to the fact that everything is changing and we can't control it, everything is in flux, can never get to a place where we're safe from things going south. Because of that resistance, we suffer. And because there is no fixed thing anywhere. Our whole idea of a self, our own self, the self of other people, the thingness of things, objects, also disappears, dissolves. The saying in Zen, from the very beginning, there's never been a single thing. Everything is a process. We can say that what we call a thing is something that's changing slow enough that, uh, <clears throat> that it appears to us as a fixed object with some sort of self. But of course we know intellectually that's not the case. So with all this, uh, all these, the marks of existence and uh, this, this dharma, this teaching, uh, it's easy to unconsciously sort of dismiss it because it, it can be kind of dry uh, when we start talking about it. But uh, it's really worth going into because if, if we can get a feel for it, if we can see how it plays out in our lives, uh, how we're affected, if we can see where it trips us up, uh, where our expectations trigger resistance, see how we shut down in the face of the way things are, that can support our aspiration to understand, supports what uh, is called right view and motivation. Understanding the deep truth of impermanence uh, becomes a real reminder for us to be present, to be here right now, because that's the one thing that always is, things as they are problem is with things as they will be. Yeah, coming to this sort of this understanding that the world is in flux, that we don't know how things are going to work out, I remember reading uh, when Roshi uh, Kolhid, when Bowden Roshi, uh, was about to assume <clears throat> the duties of being the abbot, the teacher here at the center. He was interviewed by Zenbo, and he said, it's like I'm walking on stage, but I don't know if the play is a tragedy or a comedy. It's kind of the way it is with all of us. And yet we think that somehow we're owed a smooth, pain-free life. It's the uh, mantra of, of our society, I haven't got time for the pain. And we try, to, we try to find our worth in our career, our possessions, our accomplishments. 
looking for some sort of basis, something, something permanent and reliable. We look for praise. We feel we're in competition with other people. How do I measure up? All those sort of unthinking ways of behaving, tying our, our well-being, our worth to the opinions of others. It's what perpetuates our suffering. <clears throat> so I'm going to go to uh, a couple uh, texts just to, to help get a little flavor of, of what I'm talking about. And the first guy I want to bring up is Ajahn Chah. Many of you have heard from him before. Uh, he's a teacher in the uh, Thai forest tradition. Many Westerners studied with him. Uh, now the uh, Insight uh, Meditation Center in Barrie, Massachusetts. <clears throat> a lot of the teachers there had contact with him back in the 70s and 80s studied with him. Uh, pretty remarkable man. When he died, I think something like a million people in Thailand came to his, his funeral, his service. But I don't have time probably to say a whole lot about Ajahn Chah. And I just want to dive right into uh, what he has to say. And uh, this is from a book called Being Dharma, The Essence of the Buddhist Teachings. Uh, it's been translated, I think, by Paul Breiter. And there's an introduction by Jack Cornfield, who many people have heard of. <clears throat> and I'm going to go to a section uh, called The Trapper's Snare. And he starts out like this. No aches and pains in the body, no fever or sickness. Can there be such a thing? We beings are caught, caught in the snares of Mara, the evil one. Of course, Mara is the Buddhist, uh, let's say, version of Satan. Mara, the evil one. If we, are, if we are caught in the snare, Mara can do anything to us. He can afflict us in our eyes, our ears, our limbs, anywhere. Our body is so fragile. <clears throat> so uh, contingent on things playing out exactly as they should, the deeper you go into it, uh, the more complex and tentative it seems. Uh, hormone regulation, the cascade of factors that enable blood to clot. Uh, I once saw a... Uh, an animation of a motor protein, kinesin, inside a cell moving across a track and dragging some sort of tiny cellular sack of other proteins to another part of the cell. It's just amazing what's going on. The deeper and the deeper you go into the way things are, the more unbelievable, the more amazing it seems, and the more we realize that everything just depends on things working out right. In, in traditional Buddhism, often it's said, <clears throat> our life lasts only as long as our next breath. If we can't breathe, we die. There's so many other things on which our life is contingent. And if we don't die, of course, pain, suffering, illness, all these things are waiting in the wings. <clears throat> but going back to Ajahn Chah, he says, it is the same as when someone sets a snare for animals, digs a trapper's pit, or baits a hook. When a bird comes to eat and is caught, what can it do? The snare has it by the neck. Where can it go? It tries to fly, but it can't get away. It struggles, but can't break the snare. Then the hunter, the owner of the trap, arrives. He sees the bird caught in the snare just as he had hoped. He grabs the bird. It struggles. And if it tries to nip the hunter or peck at him, he can break its beak. It may try to fly, but he can break its wings. It frantically tries to run, 
he can break its legs. The owner of the snare has all the authority here. However the bird tries to get away, there is no escaping. Likewise, we are caught in a trap. The Lord Buddha was one who saw and knew clearly according to the truth. He was a prince, an heir to the throne, who enjoyed all the royal treasures and privileges. When he saw what things were really like, he renounced everything. He clearly and unmistakably saw the nature of ordinary existence and without any regrets left it behind. Seeing it as danger, he fled. Having been born, caught by birth, he saw that he was like a bird caught in a snare. The noose was around his neck. He saw the liability, so he left it all, just walked away. Thus, after his enlightenment, he pointed this out showing what is harmful and what is beneficial in this realm of uncertainty. He would not allow himself to be submerged and drown in it. He refused to die there. He would not agree to be caught in the noose, so he was able to renounce the world and remove himself from it. Having seen, having attained realization, he then taught us to know about these things. <clears throat> First time I ever read this uh, <laughs> I uh it's it's I found it hard to take. Uh it's a little it's a little grim the image of the trap and uh the broken body. But the the real the real poignancy of it is the struggle. Uh the struggle to break free. That's really the way that suffering is intensified, is our struggle to have things be other than they are, our unwillingness to see things as they are. <clears throat> Everything in our upbringing and our society is based on sweeping inconvenient truths under the rug. Uh, but it's always sort of lingering in the background and that's part of the flavor of our lives, the, uh, the unrecognized realization that our lives are limited. There's a, uh, a quote you may have heard before from the philosopher Heidegger. It says, anxiety is there. It is only sleeping. Its breath quivers perpetually through our experience of being. I uh, remember an occasion when my daughter's dog, Pepper, uh, was on a tie-out in her backyard and uh, managed to, to break the, the pull it free and went racing off, as Pepper will do, and uh, dragging, dragging the lead behind with a, with a sort of hook at the end. And uh, we realized when she didn't return that somewhere she must have been caught up, snagged up somewhere, and uh, spent the after, late afternoon and into the evening looking for her, no luck at all. There are a lot of woods around the house and uh, who knows where she could be. And uh, woke up the next morning, still no pepper, and I went off with my dog, with Archie, and uh, we went stomping through the woods, calling, no response. Uh, but then at some point, wherever she was, where she was, she heard Archie and barked. And so we headed for the bark, and there she was. Indeed, she'd snagged her lead on, a, on an old wire fence and then wrapped it around a bush a few times, so she was on a pretty short leash at that point. And uh, it had been about... Oh, 40 degrees that night, rainy, she was wet, but she was totally okay. It was like, as my, my son-in-law said, it was like she said, well, I guess I live here now. And uh, <clears throat> none the worse for wear, I brought her back. All the people were upset. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of relief. But Pepper was still Pepper. As I walked her back, she saw a squirrel going up a tree and just went nuts barking at it. 
<clears throat> okay, <clears throat> back to Ajahn Chah. Says again, having seen, having attained realization, he taught us to know about these things. So still, though he explained the faults and dangers, the obscurations of people prevent them from seeing. The mind is so thick, so dark. <clears throat> the Buddha has a whole section on uh, just coming to an understanding of the reality of death and uh, goes through the whole progression of some people understand it when they hear of a death in another village. Some people when the death in their own village or the death happens in their own family or <clears throat> for many for many of us when we ourselves are facing our own personal death uh, it's just hard for the mind to take in. I think there have even been some uh, some studies. Uh, the, the brain has trouble conceiving of its own passing away. Just not built to do that. <clears throat> and yet, and yet, in the back of the mind it's there. The mind is so thick, so dark, it just stays like that and keeps on accumulating afflictions and desires. In all these dharmas, that is in all these things, in all these circumstances, if we investigate, we can see the liability and suffering in them. Just as it is said, birth is suffering. We are born into this world. Do we suffer? We have con contacted birth. We have arms and legs, eyes and ears. All these things coming into existence are just suffering coming into existence. Then we have to find a way to get by, struggle to support ourselves, raise a family, and so forth. We contact something and become stuck in an attachment. We touch something else and get mired in that. There is headache and worry about ourselves, anxiety over children, concern over wealth and possessions. Having been born, Anything can degenerate at any time. The ears can degenerate into deafness. The eyes can lose their sight. Pain can affect the limbs or any other parts of the body. We cannot soar away because we are caught in the snare, the snare of the trapper. It is up to the trapper now to do as he wishes. We are in the trap. He can take care of us and raise us, or he can break our beaks, break our wings. This trap represents the demon of the aggregates or the demon of the afflictions. The aggregates are the five skandhas, basically uh, <clears throat> Buddhist, Buddha's explanation of the, of the, human, of the human being. Uh, also called the five heaps. We're just a combination of factors and contingencies. And the afflictions are, of course, are all the uh, greed and anger, delusion, <clears throat> the poisons. Or sometimes uh, in Chinese Buddhism, I've heard it referred to as vexations. It says, here the mass of humans do not understand the Dharma and only want to escape from reality. They strive to avoid it and struggle to get away. They don't want it to be the way it is, but wish for it to be otherwise. So it leads to suffering by way of sensual desire, desire for becoming, and desire not to be. So the Buddha taught us to analyze the body, to give rise to dispassion, detachment, and disenchantment and to see that these conditions are not a being, an individual, or a self. It's like when we are working in the fields. We put up a scarecrow when the rice is maturing so the birds won't alight to eat the crop. We gather sticks and grass, tie it all together, cover it with a shirt and pants, then the birds are afraid. They won't eat the rice now. The scarecrow is helping us. Now the rice has a chance to ripen, then we can harvest it and the job is done. But actually it was only a skeleton of grass and sticks. Once we've harvested the rice, we can discard the scarecrow there in the paddy. That's all there is to it. 
we are just like this scarecrow. When consciousness leaves this body, there is nothing, no different from the skeleton of grass. The scarecrow in the field does not go anywhere, and ultimately it is just discarded there. But now we can move, we can go places. We have all sorts of thoughts and feelings and desires to do things and travel about. We think about going and we go. We think about staying, so we stay. We want to sing and dance and play according to the way of the world. To put it simply, it's just as if we were waiting for the day of death. The harvest time comes, the crop is reaped, the rice gathered and carted away, and the scarecrow is discarded in the field. When the day of harvesting comes, we depart. Someone who doesn't know the beginning or end of things will feel elation and depression and go on spinning around, not wanting to have illness when he gets sick, not wanting to get old when he gets old, not wanting to die when he dies, not wanting life to disappear. But things are like this. We don't understand the law of nature, and we want things to be stable and permanent. This is me. That is her. Everything is seen in terms of me and mine, and Dharma is never contemplated. The point is, when it gets to the end, everyone must leave it all behind. Material gain, reputation, praise, whatever happiness or suffering there is, it is all left here in the world. They are worldly accomplishments. <clears throat> we spend so much time worrying about those things, worrying about material gain, worrying about the opinions of other people, worrying about what we've accomplished. Does my life measure up? How little time gets devoted to being, to presence, to kindness. Why is it necessary for someone to have accomplishments? And what is the life of the people who live by them only? Obviously, if we want to do something, <clears throat> we put our put ourselves into it. We do it well, and from that may come accomplishments. There's nothing wrong with that, but to think that's what we're here for—to <clears throat> measure up—diminishes our lives and leads to suffering. <clears throat> Material gain, reputation, praise. Whatever happiness or suffering there is, it is all left here in the world. They are all worldly accomplishments. We people are no different than a bird confined in a cage or a fish in a tank. Whenever the owner wants to take them, he can do so. If he wants to kill them, he can do that because they are trapped in his cage or his tank. This is suffering in the cycle of samsara. There is no way out other than learning the Dharma to know things according to the truth. Looking at Dharma, don't look far away. If you look far away, you won't see it. If you have doubts about Dharma, look at yourself. Look at this body and this mind. What is there that is certain or reliable? To what extent are they yourself? How much essence do they have? How stable, how permanent or long-lasting are there? There is no such part that is like this, that is, that is permanent or long-lasting. <clears throat> we have hair and it will gray. We have teeth and they will decay and fall out. The ears will lose their hearing. The vision will weaken. The skin will become dry and wrinkled. Why is it like this? Because we have no power to force things to be the way we want. They follow their own conditions and do not listen to the commands of anyone. <clears throat> it's like a river that flows to the south. If we see it and want it to flow in the other direction, can that happen? There can only be frustration then. The water flows south, and we want it to flow north. Of course, here in Rochester, the water flows north, <clears throat> so maybe we want it to flow south. I don't know. When will this ever be resolved? If the water is wrong, is the water wrong, or are we wrong? It is just a way to create frustration. Nature is like that, things following their laws. 
No matter how much we wish to force it to be otherwise, it just continues on in that way. What should we do? If we think like this, where can we find happiness? The river flows on in the same direction, thinking we cannot make it change. Trying to do something about it, we find it is beyond our ability. So the Buddha wanted us to practice meditation, to listen to the Dharma and investigate, and to see according to the truth, the truth of the river. If it flows south, let it flow that way. Don't fight it. If there is a person with the eye of wisdom who stands by the river, sees it flowing south and can accept that because it is just the nature of things, there is no conflict or frustration. The water flows in this way and that's all there is to it. That is dharma, that is nature. There is aging, sickness and death. In the beginning there is birth, in the middle aging and in the end breaking up and disappearing. Those who can contemplate and see the truth of this will be at peace. It's, it's the same as it is with any kind of pain, our struggle with, with, with the way things are, with the changing nature, with impermanence, with the inevitability of suffering. There is the suffering that comes from my leg hurts or <clears throat> my son has died or all the things that happen to us in life and then there's the suffering we pile on top of that uh, with railing against it and trying to find a way around it. Of course, animals don't have that failing, that fault. Pepper says, well, I guess I live here now. Through, through our practice, through being with difficulties, working through them without falling back on why should it be this way, why is this happening to me, what did I do to deserve this, uh, through, all, with, through, through learning to drop those unskillful ways of, of relating, we find our way <clears throat> in this only world that there is. I'm going to read one other thing here, somewhat shorter. Uh, it's a selection from, uh, it was published in, uh, I think, in Tricycle. <clears throat> Either Tricycle or Lion's Roar. Sorry to say that I didn't write that down. Uh, it's uh, a piece from a book Pema Chodron wrote. Pema Chodron is a Dharma teacher in uh, Halifax in northern Canada uh, in the Vajrayana tradition. The book is called When Things Fall Apart. That's probably her most famous book. And I think it fits in really well right here. Um, so just digging right in. She says, the first noble truth of the Buddha is that when we feel suffering, it doesn't mean that something is wrong. What a relief. Finally, somebody told the truth. Suffering is part of life, and we don't have to feel it's happening because we personally made the wrong move. In reality, however, when we feel suffering, we think that something is wrong. As long as we're addicted to hope, we feel that we can tone our experience down or liven it up or change it somehow, and we continue to suffer a lot. The word in Tibetan for hope is rewa, probably mispronouncing it. The word for fear is dokpa. More commonly, the word redok is used, which combines the two. So hope and fear is a feeling with two sides. As long as there's one, there's always the other. 
in this hope and fear is the root of our pain. In the world of hope and fear, we always have to change the channel, change the temperature, change the music, because something is getting uneasy, something is getting restless, something is beginning to hurt, and we keep looking for alternatives. <clears throat> it's amazing if you look at yourself to see how, how often the trigger for what we do is just a, a vague feeling of uneasiness. Just get a little uncomfortable and then we're clicking into some new habit pattern, well, some old habit pattern. Do so much of it without awareness, without knowing that we're doing it. That's why it's so helpful, uh, such a factor for spiritual growth to be aware of what's going on. If you want to talk about an accomplishment in our lives, it would be just to know what's happening. How many people do? And no matter how much you see, there's always more. <clears throat> so it's this world of hope and fear. In a non-theistic state of mind, that is a, not with a God concept, a God outside of us who's taking care of us or <clears throat> inflicting pain on us, in a non-theistic state of mind, abandoning hope is an affirmation, the beginning of the beginning. You could even put abandoned hope on your refrigerator door Instead of more conventional aspirations, like every day in every way, I'm getting better and better. Hope and fear come from feeling that we lack something. They come from a sense of poverty. We can't simply relax with ourselves. We hold on to hope, and hope robs us of the present moment. Hope robs us of the present moment because we're casting our minds forward to whatever it is we want or whatever it is we fear. It doesn't matter if it's hope or fear. We feel that someone else knows what's going on, but that there's something missing in us, and therefore something is lacking in our world. Rather than letting our negativity get the better of us, we could acknowledge that right now we feel like a piece of shit and not be squeamish about taking a good look that's the compassionate thing to do. That's the brave thing to do. We could smell that piece of shit. We could feel it. What is its texture, color, and shape? So interesting. <clears throat> we do, uh, in the before times, we uh, had a program called uh, Hello Pain. Uh, basically, my wife was the... Uh, motive behind that and put the program together. But we would go out uh, into various groups. Uh, some of the YMCA's had, uh, had groups of old people that met there and uh, we did it at a few of those places and others where we would um, basically show people how to med meditate and talk to them about working with pain. And it was, it was really uh, affirming to do that, to see, you know, a piece of the Dharma brought out to uh, people who aren't Buddhist and uh, <clears throat> aren't going to become Buddhists, but nevertheless, they're struggling with what we all struggle with, and a lot of them, being older, uh, are dealing with a whole world of pain. And uh, it was one of the things we would do, would be to uh, encourage people to, when you feel pain, Take a look at it. Take an interest in it. Try to see what it's like. Does it have a shape? What sort of uh, what happens in the body when when you feel the pain? What tenses up? Uh, is it steady? Does it does it wax and wane? Uh, is it suddenly stabbing and then throbbing? Uh, just get to know it as completely as possible. And what was amazing was that so many people found that by doing that, by turning toward the pain instead of flinching away from it, they were able to manage it better. And of course, it doesn't have to be physical pain. Everything negative that happens to us, uh, the same principle applies. 
And the ability to do that, to really look at it dispassionately without trying to change it, comes from Zazen, comes from meditation. Now, Roshi uh, is fond of saying that when we sit, we're practicing for dying. We're practicing learning to let go. We're practicing to learning to look without having an agenda. There's a kind of therapy called ACT, I've talked about it before, um, <clears throat> which apparently is has some track record of being helpful for people with anxiety. And again, with anxious feelings like anything else, uh, getting to know it, getting to feel it, not turning away from it, is kind of a key to learning to live more fully with the anxiety that's there. But the point, they make the point that if you're doing that, if you're trying to accept your anxiety in order for it to lessen, it won't work because that's not acceptance. It's a, it's a <clears throat> difficult thing that we're doing trying to open up to our lives and knowing that by doing so, things will get better. But we want to shepherd that process along. We want to make sure it's happening. We want to ask, are we there yet? That's why I think it's uh, so helpful what she says, abandon hope. She goes on, we can explore the nature of that piece of shit. We can know the nature of dislike, shame, and embarrassment, and not believe there's something wrong with that. We can drop the fundamental hope that there is a better me who one day will emerge. We can't just jump over ourselves as if we were not there. It's better to take a straight look at all our hopes and fears. Then some kind of confidence in our basic sanity arises we begin to have faith in our ability to be here now, to be in this moment. That becomes our place of refuge rather than the old dysfunctional running away, distraction, denial. This is the Buddhist way. This is basic Buddhist teaching. Dispassion, Dispassion, clear seeing. She goes on, this is where renunciation enters the picture. Renunciation of the hope that our experience could be different. Renunciation of the hope that we could be better. The Buddhist monastic rules that advise renouncing liquor, renouncing sex, and so on, are not pointing out that those things are inherently bad or immoral, but that we use them as babysitters. We use them as a way to escape. We use them to try to get comfort and to distract ourselves. The real thing that we renounce is the tenacious hope that we could be saved from being who we are. Renunciation is a teaching to inspire us to investigate what's happening every time we grab something because we can't stand to face what's coming. When we investigate it, what do we see? We see that, no, 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 I don't want this. We see the tension in the body. It's actually, when we, when we have those reactions, it's a gateway. There's a, <clears throat> a woman named Byron Katie who's fond of saying, it's a compassionate alarm clock those feelings of dread, anxiety, telling us you're lost in the dream. You're not here. You're not here now. It's a poem by T.S. Eliot. 
I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. Whisper of running streams and winter lightning, the wild thyme unseen and the wild strawberry, the laughter in the garden echoed ecstasy, not lost, but requiring, pointing to the agony of birth and death. going to go on a little farther with one more piece. I think we have time for it. It's definitely related. Um, It's an article that was published in Lion's Roar, and the title is Buddhism's Five Remembrances Are Wake-Up Calls for Us All. It's written by somebody named Cohen Franz. Some sort of Dharma teacher, I imagine. He says, often someone will ask me, what's Buddhism about? I usually go straight to what are known as Buddhism's three seals, the concepts of dissatisfaction, impermanence, and non-self, or what we've been calling dukkha, Anicca and Anatta, impermanence, suffering, no self. I'll tell the person these are the structural underpinnings of Buddhism, but that's a lot to take in. If I were being more skillful, I would probably have business cards printed up with the five remembrances of foundational Buddhism on them. And when someone asked, what is Buddhism? I would say, here, it's this. And then he lists the five remembrances. One, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. Two, I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. Three, I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. Four, all that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. And five, my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. Says these five remembrances first found in the Upajitana Sutra, are intended to be recited. They're intended to be memorized. They're things you can say every day. Maybe they're the first thing you say when you wake up or the first thought you have before you go to bed. Maybe they're taped next to your bedroom, bathroom mirror or on your kitchen counter. And as they become internalized, they become a kind of touchstone a constant reminder to yourself that you are of the nature to grow old, that there's no way around aging, that there's no way around sickness and around death. These first three, of course, are basically what drove the Buddha to become the Buddha. These were the central wake-up calls of his life before he woke up. Sickness, old age, death, it's so commonsensical. says, then we have these last two. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. This is impermanence. There is no way to escape being separated from. And there we have a little bit of the spice of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. Everything is going to change. Nothing is ever going to be as I want it to be, as I need it to be, as I think it should be. I can't keep the perfect thing. I can't keep anything. We say these in the first person, but we can say them in second person. 
maybe not out loud, but as you're looking at your aging parents, as you're looking at your friend who is suffering from a debilitating disease, as you're looking at your children going through all the joys and the difficulties of growing up, you can pause and think to yourself, you are of the nature to grow old. You are of the nature to die. You're going to suffer separation and loss. We shouldn't pretend otherwise. And of course, we can also say it as we. We are all this. We are all going to lose what we have if we ever had it. We are all of this nature. Some of my most grounded and simple moments in relationship to this practice have taken place in settings like subway stations, moments of being crowded in by hundreds or thousands of people and looking out at so many faces, more than you can process, and then thinking, oh, we're all this. Everything that is true to me about this practice is true to them. It changes the room. It changes the air. Not because something good happened, but because that's my one brief, honest look at where I am. Remembrance number five is maybe the most interesting. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. This is about karma. I've heard it said, and maybe you have as well, this phrase that we own our actions, but not the fruits of our actions. We experience the consequences, but we don't get to have the rewards. <clears throat> Can't count on the rewards. It's the echo of the emperor of China who uh, trotted out all the temples monasteries that he had built and asked what the merit was. <clears throat> of course, Bodhidharma told him, no merit whatsoever. What we have is what we do. The doing is it. We don't control the way things play out, the consequences. But if we live one way, we get one result. We live another way, we get another result. We have to, we have to go along for the ride. Always we have this, we have this, this awareness, this awakeness, this moment. It's always there for us. We lose it when we worry about what's going to happen. It makes sense to be to take normal precautions. It's a good idea to lock your car when you leave it on the street. <clears throat> but don't lay up at night worrying if somebody's going to break in and Steal it. There was a woman most people have heard of, Helen Keller, was born blind and deaf. All she really had to learn was a sense of touch Somehow or other, uh, she had a teacher who worked with her and she was able to find out what was there in the world that she couldn't see and couldn't hear. Uh, amazing woman. She said this, she said, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. When we're willing for things to be as they are, for things to be as we do not want them to be, 
everything opens up. Then life does become an adventure. And we get better at that. We work at that. It's my experience. We never get, (laughs) we never master it completely. It's always more to do. But it makes us, it not only makes our own lives more worthwhile, richer, it makes us kinder. It makes us more available to other people. We want to talk about an accomplishment. It would be a heart of kindness. That's what Dogen said in the end. So, of course, <clears throat> we don't spend a lot of time in Zen practice dealing with words and letters. So much of it is on the mat, but it does help to to reflect. And to resolve to do our best. Not to be cheated. Not to fool ourselves. Somebody asked the great master Joshu, what is the main rule for a monk, for one who wears the robe? He said, not to fool himself, not to deceive himself, himself or herself. All right, we got a late start, but we've used up all the time we have. We'll stop now and recite the four vows.